Welcome to Follow the Science, a discussion of science, how science is done, how it's communicated, and sometimes how it's miscommunicated. I'm Faye Flam. I'm a science journalist and Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and this podcast is the product of a fellowship from the Society for Professional Journalists. Today, I'm going to talk about my new favorite topic, getting back to normal. I've interviewed a lot of experts out there, and for the most part, they have really high hopes for the vaccines that are now being rolled out. That includes two that are approved and getting rolled out a little slowly, but faster all the time, and a couple more that are very close to being approved and look really good in clinical trials. And the experts are pretty unanimous in saying these vaccines are likely to keep people from dying at the high rates that we're seeing now, but they're hoping for another benefit too, and that is the prospect of herd immunity, that wonderful state where so many people are immune that it slows down the virus. And even if 10 or 5% of people don't get good protection from the vaccine, if there's a lot less virus out there, they're much less likely to get the virus and die. And if we get herd immunity, it might be possible to start living real life again, seeing friends, being close to people, being friendly to strangers, just being fully human again. I can only tell you that I have never seen my patients more miserable. And I saw them, I saw them all throughout the phases of history of HIV, and they are miserable right now. I have never seen them more depressed, lonely, upset, mentally ill, relapsing into substances. And so it may make your messaging more nuanced when you look at people, I think. That was Monica Gandhi. She's an infectious disease doctor at the University of California, San Francisco, and she knows something about pandemics, having worked through the AIDS pandemic before the COVID one came along. And she really gets it, that the need to go back to normal is not just about people wanting to go to the grocery store without a mask. This is about people, many of us, needing to end a very long period of unhealthy isolation. She's a real optimist, though, because she thinks that these vaccines work so well that we are likely to get out of this nightmare, maybe sometime in 2021. But we'll need to deploy these with full force. There are a couple of wild cards here. One is that there have been a couple of new mutant forms of this virus detected, and new ones seem to be cropping up all the time, and some people are worried that they might be able to evade the current crop of vaccines. We'll deal with that question a little bit later, but right now we're going to talk about whether the current vaccines can not only cut down on symptoms and illness, but also prevent people from getting those so-called asymptomatic or silent cases that can nevertheless be transmitted to other people. People are making a lot of assumptions about either assuming that the vaccine will prevent transmission or assuming it won't. And so what's known at this point? You know, there is biological plausibility to impute that a vaccine will interrupt transmission because a rigorous and comprehensive immune response to a vaccine, which doesn't include just antibodies, but you know the T cells and, and memory B cells and T cells, will biologically plausibly will block transmission. Now, AstraZeneca did work into their trials a weekly self-swabbing protocol by participants because it's very inefficient in any trial design to have someone come in every week. So they did a self-swabbing protocol. 
And Moderna did one other thing, which is that they themselves swabbed every single person before the second dose. So based on data from the Moderna trial with swabbing everyone before the second dose and the data from the AstraZeneca trials in the Lancet December 8th issue, we do have some evidence that asymptomatic carriage is also reduced with vaccination. So the rate of asymptomatic infection in those who got vaccinated versus those who got placebo. And if you calculate that, there was a 62% risk reduction between the first and second dose of also getting asymptomatic uh, disease. So we have two vaccines, one that's already being rolled out in the U.S. and another that's close to it, that both show signs of reducing transmission. And then the other vaccine that's been approved in the U.S., the one made by Moderna, we just don't know one way or another. I wanted to know what this means for the future. If we see a big drop in cases and deaths, can we finally start going back to normal? Now there seems to be an ongoing argument about what you do you do after vaccination and do we mask and distance? And it seems to have taken on too much of a life of its own because, in my opinion, because eventually speaking, when people, the, the very definition of herd immunity means that when we have enough people vaccinated, that question of asymptomatic carriage, I'm going to use the word carriage, will no longer be of utility because you're vaccinated, I'm vaccinated, everyone's vaccinated, right? You know, yeah, when you look at these uh, debates on Twitter, people are saying, what, you mean we're supposed to do this social distancing thing forever? That's not a way that I can live. That's, they're accurate about that, right? Like, no, that is not a way they can live. And so a lot of what has happened in, in the confusion about this virus is, is public health messaging that is not clean, clear or transparent. The entire point of these wonderful vaccinations is that we will go back to living the way that was appreciated before, which is without distancing and masking. November 9th, which is the first time that we got results from the Pfizer trial, and then November 16th, we got Moderna. It was crazily, wildly giddy excitement by everyone. These are amazing vaccines. They they work so well. That sort of gets back to the messages that it seems like when the people that are saying, oh, the vaccines won't protect you against transmission are turning people away from the motivation to get a vaccine because they're saying, well, I'm young, I'm not likely to end up in the hospital. And if it's not going to protect other people, then why should I do it? It will make people say, wait, the entire point <laughs> was that I, I I thought that we were going to get back to normal and you're telling me we're going to get back to, we're not going to get back to normal. It seems like one really important thing that, and I've seen this around me and on Twitter is it's not too hard to, to sacrifice all this if there's an end in, in sight. If you can say, okay, I just will not do that until February or March or April, but to have it sort of stretch out forever, I think is, it just makes people think either, I'm not going to do this or they're going to become incredibly depressed. Very depressed. But now we can truly give endpoints. Like, how hopeful is that? I mean, when I was messaging dutifully along with every other public health official over the holidays that it's probably best to not travel for the holidays, even though I think you could also have done it safely. I said, why don't you get on your Zoom call with your family and plan your July trip? My next guest is Ben Cowling. He's an epidemiologist at the University of Hong Kong, and he's a little more pessimistic. He thinks there's a good chance we will get herd immunity with a good vaccine rollout, 
but he worries that if we don't, normal might not return for a while. What do we know about the possibility that the uh, current vaccines and maybe some of them in the pipeline will affect transmission? Maybe you could say there's two reasons for widespread vaccination. One reason is to protect the people who are vaccinated. So vaccinate elderly first, healthcare workers, and then and then as many of the other people in the population as we can. And each vaccinated person should be protected by the vaccine to some degree. If it's the Pfizer vaccine, then 95% protection against uh, moderate or severe disease. But the second reason that we use vaccines is to protect the entire community through what's called herd immunity. And that means even people who haven't been vaccinated or people in whom the vaccine maybe didn't work as well, even those people could be protected indirectly by herd immunity. Right. Well, I would think that even though we're not certain that that we're going to get a protective effect against infection, that it might be worthwhile to really go for herd immunity. I mean, go for a chance at herd immunity. No, of course. Of course. So, so, so maybe I should say it this way, that the worrying scenario would be that if the vaccines we're using in the US and in Europe don't have as much effect against mild disease and transmission as we think they might. So for example, 50%, 60% protection against mild disease and against transmission, that's, that's a hypothetical scenario. If that's the case, then we won't reach herd immunity, even if we vaccinate everybody. So you're right that we would like to go for herd immunity, but if the vaccines aren't that good against mild illness and against transmission, then we can't get herd immunity. Given that there are some new mutations that are uh, that are worrisome, do you think that we really need to you know get these vaccines into people faster, just because it'll give us a, a hope that we can still get herd immunity even as we're sort of racing with new mutations? Yeah, I, I certainly vaccines spell the end of this pandemic and the quicker that we can get vaccines out and vaccinate people, the better. And now it seems like we're in a, a little bit of a race against time with increasing numbers of infections in, in many parts of the world, vaccine campaigns starting, but maybe vaccinations not going out as quickly as we would like. I think in California, Disney World's going to be used as a mass vaccination site. That's a great idea. So that's a place with very good transport connections, enormous car park, facilities there where lots and lots of people could come in, get vaccinated safely with social distancing and then leave again. And um, I, I think other states should should really be looking at ways to speed up vaccination and, and get more vaccines out on a, from day to day. Yeah, I also wondered about vaccine hesitancy. Uh, there have been stories here in the US about healthcare workers who have heard too many stories of adverse reactions on, you know, on Facebook, and they have turned down their chance to get a vaccine. Yeah, I think that's going to be a big problem in the next, probably in the next six months or the next year. So remember, again, that the vaccine, the effective vaccine coverage is the critical thing that we're looking at for herd immunity. And I said, you know, we want to get that to 60 or 70%. If we have hesitancy in some groups, and I think there will be hesitancy, not only in healthcare workers, but also in young adults, if we have hesitancy in that groups, it's going to be difficult to get a high level of vaccine coverage. And so I, I am concerned about that. And I'm not sure the solution, because for young adults, maybe in their 20s or 30s, COVID is typically not a severe disease. So we'd like them to be vaccinated so that they could contribute to herd immunity. But at an individual level, I understand why they'd be hesitant to, to get a vaccine that's um, protecting them against a disease, which is 
typically mild. I just wonder whether it could help to sort of emphasize that while we don't know how, you know, how many vaccinated people will need to get herd immunity, that the getting the vaccine will, will be doing your part, that you will be helping, you know, the, at least improving the odds that we can get to herd immunity. Yeah. Well, I think that's right. I think, uh, I think that's a, that's a sensible strategy. <laughs> that's good. That's yeah. good. I, I, um, <laughs> And I just wonder, you know, I've seen some discussions back and forth on social media about, you know, people saying, well, you still have to wear masks and social distance. And and I wonder whether people are reading that to mean we're going to have to do this forever and are just sort of feeling ready to give up. Whereas. Yeah, I I understand. I I think there's a lot of fatigue with these measures. And then recently, I agree with you, it hasn't helped that there's been a lot of discussion about how we might still need to do all these things even after vaccines. And we were thinking that vaccines were going to bring an end to all of that. And now it's not so clear. Do you think people um, will accept not having any friends or social life, single people forever? I think they already already haven't accepted it. Do you think that we've been focused too much on the wrong rules? Um, I've, I've talked to some infectious disease people who say, you know, we, we're obsessed with things that are very unlikely to cause transmission. And most of the transmissions are happening because people are getting together in their homes, indoors, maybe in indoor restaurants, but it's not people who go out at six in the morning and walk their dog without a mask. Exactly. I've, I've heard about mask mandates for people when they leave their home. And I, I think it's not going to make a lot of difference if you wear a mask outdoors or not, because not a lot of transmissions occurring outdoors. It'd be much more important to talk about wearing masks indoors, in shops, maybe in workplaces, and thinking more about minimizing prolonged close contact with other people in indoor settings. Uh, but wearing a mouse mask outdoors, I, I don't think it really makes much difference. The other question is, you know, if we get enough people protected against severe disease and we're not seeing a lot of severe mm. disease, it becomes something that's, you know, less like flu. Why not go back to normal? Well, right. So this is the problem. If you do a calculation of how many elderly would die from COVID if we're going back to normal, Right now, um, not right now, something... but once we get them all vaccinated, once all right, right. Of... no, understood, understood, understood. Okay. So let, let me just continue my calculation. Okay. So it's something like 10% of the most frail elderly and maybe 5% of all elderly, because that's the fatality risk for COVID, right? In elderly, you can look up the papers on fatality risks, it's something like 5%. So in America, how many elderly do you have? He says, even if the vaccines are 95% effective and they cut down on deaths by 95%. That that still leaves 5%, and that's too many deaths for him to find acceptable. But that's kind of a worst-case scenario. This is under the assumption that within the next few years, if the vaccine doesn't limit transmission enough, if we don't have herd immunity, then everybody's going to get infected sooner or later, naturally. And that may not come to pass, you're right. It's a kind of a worst-case scenario. But that's what we're worried about. My next guest is Art Krieg. He's a doctor who specializes in treating autoimmune diseases, and he's also the founder of a biotech called Checkmate Pharmaceuticals, which makes a component of vaccines. And he's very optimistic about the COVID vaccines, about how well they're likely to work, not just against the sort of symptomatic cases, but against those so-called asymptomatic cases or silent cases that people worry might continue to fuel the spread of the disease and keep us from getting herd immunity and a return to normal. I do expect that the vaccine is going to reduce 
asymptomatic infections as well as the symptomatic infections. But I think scientists like to be cautious and conservative in interpreting data. And if the studies only proved it for symptomatic infections, then technically you can only say that that's what we've shown. And I think that we can extrapolate from what we know about the biology of this virus and the biology of other viruses to predict that probably this is going to reduce asymptomatic infections as well. The other really interesting question here is whether getting a lot of people vaccinated is still likely to cut down enough on transmission to make a difference. Well, I think that's right. Once you have people getting vaccinated, it's almost inconceivable that this isn't going to slow the transmission. But I do think that once people get vaccinated, they still ought to wear a mask to be on the safe side. I mean, also, if you think about it, if you're walking around outside and you're not wearing a mask, how do other people know that you've been vaccinated? Until we know for sure that the vaccine really does eradicate the asymptomatic spread of infection, the best thing for everyone to do is to just keep on wearing masks. And I think what we're going to see in the coming months is that the rate of spread is going to go down. The number of people infected is going to go down. And we're all just going to be able to breathe a sigh of relief. But for the next few months, uh, we're in a bad place. I mean, this infection is still spreading and the vaccine is really coming just in the nick of time. And a lot of people think, you know, how can you possibly know that this technology is going to be safe? We know it's effective. We've seen that. And we actually have the safety data, too, to show that this is safe in people getting the vaccine. Well, there are a lot of people out there that are very worried about one particular anecdote that it, this guy in Florida, a doctor who died a couple of weeks after he got the vaccine, mm. suggesting that this death might have been connected to the vaccine. We have to look at the total safety profile, and that's why you do placebo groups in clinical trials. And the placebo groups in the clinical trials for this vaccine were over 15,000 people for each of the two RNA vaccines in that you know ballpark. And so by comparing the number of safety events in the placebo population and the number of safety events in the other population, the, the vaccine population, we can say that if there are extra side effects that are occurring, they must be in less than one in 10,000 people, one in 20,000 people. Like the other experts I spoke to, he worries a lot about these new mutant variants of the virus, which seem to be cropping up everywhere. But he says that's even more reason to get those vaccines out there fast. The other thing that's important to realize, though, about the rate of mutation in this virus is that the more people who are infected by the virus, the faster new forms and new mutants of the virus are going to evolve. Uncertainty is part of science. It's just the nature of things, especially when we're trying to predict the future of this pandemic. And it's not just about the behavior of vaccines or the behavior of the virus, but it's also about us and what we decide to do. And the vaccines are likely to help at least, not just to extend the amount of life for the vulnerable people, but also to make life more livable for the rest of us, to get us back to normal eventually, which has to happen. So when it's your turn, step up, go out and get your shots. Thank you for listening to Follow the Science. Follow the Science is produced by Faye Flam with funding by the Society for Professional Journalists. 
Today's episode was edited by Seth Glixman, with music by Kyle Imperator. If you'd like to hear more Follow the Science, you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast fix.